And today's sermon title is Truth at Home. This is God's holy and inerrant word, starting in verse 1. Now this is the commandment, the statutes and the rules, that the Lord your God commanded me to teach you, that you may do them in the land to which you are going over to possess it, that you may fear the Lord your God, you and your son and your son's son, by keeping all his statutes and his commandments, which I command you all the days of your life, and that your days may be long. Hear therefore, O Israel, and be careful to do them, that it may go well with you, and that you may multiply greatly as the Lord, the God of our fathers, has promised you, in a land flowing with milk and honey. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. And these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children and shall talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise. You shall bind them as a sign on your hand and as shall be a frontlets between your eyes. You shall write them on the doorpost of your house and on your gates. Moving down to verse 20. When your son asks you in the time to come, what is the meaning of these testimonies and the statutes and the rules that the Lord our God has commanded you? Then you shall say to your sons, We were Pharaoh's slaves in Egypt, and the Lord brought us out of Egypt with a mighty hand. And the Lord showed signs and wonders, great and grievous, against Egypt and against Pharaoh and all his household before our eyes. And he brought us out from there, that, we, that he might bring us in and give us the land that he swore to give to our fathers. And the Lord commanded us to do all these statutes, to fear the Lord our God for our good always, that he might preserve us alive as we are this day. And it will be righteousness for us if we are careful to do all these commandments before the Lord our God as he has commanded us. Moving now to Ephesians 6.4. Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. This is the word of the Lord. Good morning. If we haven't had the chance to meet, my name is Bill Smith. I'm one of the pastors here at Renewal Mainline. And before we dive into our passage this morning, I just want to say thank you. Uh, the congregation appreciated the pastors last week. And on behalf of Pastor Nick, Pastor Dan, myself, and our families, we just want to say thank you very much. Thank you for your incredible generosity to us. I almost want to say thank you even more for the cards that you sent. Uh, Sally and I were reading through one of them. I got all choked up. I had to pause in the moment, just as I'm reading some of the things that you said. So you touched our hearts very much. We want to say thank you. Thank you for appreciating us. Thank you even more for the privilege of being able to serve you and serve alongside of you. Turning now to our Sunday morning teaching series, we've been studying the authority and the sufficiency of Scripture this fall, and we shifted our focus last week. First half of the series looked at the big picture aspects of what Scripture is. We're shifting now to more, what does this mean for us on the ground? Last week we saw that a crucial part of how we as individuals interact with Scripture 
is that we go there and we continually remind ourselves of the gospel. We keep going through scripture and we keep noticing, here's the gospel, here's the gospel, here's the gospel. And we recognize that God was not only interacting with people like that way back then, but that that's the model for how he interacts with us now. And that as we experience that kind of love now, it transforms us, changes us on the inside so that we love him back and so that we love others. This week, we're going to expand that circle a little bit outwardly from ourselves as individuals, and we want to think about the people who are closest to us, either to our families or the people that we live with. And maybe to start us, I, I want to tell you about a friend of mine. He came to faith later in life, and I remember him saying to me one time, I am all about the mission. Tell me what to do, and I'm all in, only I don't know what the mission is as a Christian husband, as a Christian dad. I don't know what I'm supposed to be doing. I don't know what I'm supposed to be aiming at. And I don't think he's alone in that feeling. It's one thing to get married to, and to have kids. It's another thing to know what God expects from us in our marriages, and especially what he expects from us with our kids. Ever since Sally and I had our first child, I've been amazed at how I, at as I think about how little preparation is required for you to take a baby home from the hospital. I, I'm hoping that this has changed and that you all can come and correct me later. But no one ever asks, they didn't ask us, have, um, have you taken a class on raising children? Have you done any reading, any study? Do you have an idea of what you're trying to do with this little person apart from trying to keep them clean and fed? What is your philosophy of how you're going to take a helpless infant and then work with them over the course of many years so that they become a mature adult? Someone who can support not only themselves, but then can contribute back to the overall society that made it possible for them to have a life in the first place. No one ever asks a question like that. Instead, they ask, do you have a car seat? And you think, that's it? <laughs> that, that's all I need in order to bring this little eternal image of God home. Little wonder that my friend would say later, I don't know what the mission is. I don't know what I'm supposed to be doing, but, but I want to know. And he was very humble. He said, I'm willing to ask the question. I think he had the right approach. If you don't know, you have to start by acknowledging, I don't know. But it's not embarrassing. I'm allowed to ask the question, what do I do here? Because if you don't do that, then your only other option is to drift into the things that the people around you want for their children. You drift into those things, you adopt those things, you start to dream about those things for your own children. And if you dream about those things without knowing what God's goals are for you as a parent, you will take the dreams that you have for your children, and you'll turn those into the goals that you aim for, and you will bend all of your parenting around trying to make those goals happen. I'm not sure if you know what I mean by that. Parents do what? They, they dream about the future for their children. They dream about their children being successful in life, going to a good school, having a good career, having friends, being liked, meeting that special someone, settling down. They dream about kids having grandkids, bringing the grandkids over, about having these wonderful, nice family gatherings together. None of those dreams are bad. Those are good dreams. 
Don't give up on those dreams if you have those dreams. But if you don't have God's goals in mind, you will slowly turn those dreams, those desires, into your goals. And you will make that the target of your parenting. And then you will hang the weight of those dreams on your children and on yourself. If those dreams don't come true, you'll have to blame that failure on what? On your children or on yourself or maybe both. Which is why when you read through Scripture, you will not find God telling you that those are the primary things you should be aiming for as you raise your children. They're not his goals. They are his blessings. They're not his goals. They are not his highest dreams and desires for your children. And therefore, making those things happen is not his mission for you. Instead, he has a different one. He tells you in passages like this that your number one priority, your goal in raising your child, is to so fill your child's world with the knowledge of himself, with the knowledge of this God who is, with the knowledge of what he's like, and what that knowledge then means in every area of life, of life your top priority is to so fill your child's world with the knowledge of God that whether they embrace him or reject him, they clearly know who he is and what he's about. It's an emphasis you find throughout Scripture. It's especially clear in our passages from this morning. Book of Deuteronomy is what? It's the organizing document for the nation of Israel. It's really a series of sermons uh, that Moses gave. They are his last recorded words to the people right before they enter the land that God promised to give them. So up until this point, they were an ethnic group, but they were not an organized nation. They did not have a national identity. They were not a nation who could order their own affairs, who could develop their own culture. Instead, they were enslaved. They were oppressed by another nation. Now they're about to become a people. They're about to have their own identity, their own culture, their own laws. And Deuteronomy is the document that lays out for them who they are as a people. It gives them their identity as God's people. It tells them who they are and it tells them how to live. And among all of these 30-plus chapters in here, among all the things that it says to them, it tells them, here's how you pass this understanding, this understanding of who you are and how you're supposed to live. Here's how you pass it along to the next generation. It tells them that their families are the primary communicators of the faith to the next generation of God's people. And so here at the start of the people of God as a formal, recognized national identity, God builds in one of the foundational principles, here's how this gets passed along through the next generations. Interesting, then, you turn over into the New Testament, and that passage that Nick read in Ephesians, as the church is just getting underway, as it's starting to develop its own identity, beginning to develop as a formal organization. At the inception of the church, we read in Ephesians that fathers, which if you read the context in Ephesians, also includes mothers, that parents are responsible for bringing up their children in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. In other words, at the beginning of the Old Testament people of God, the New Testament people of God, God underlines, here's the mission for parents. 
Make sure your children know whose world it is that they're living in. Make sure your children know what I expect of them in this world. That's what we're looking at today. I'm going to extend our introduction a little bit longer because I think there are two concerns that we might have as a church that really are, are important to look at before we look at the passage. First concern, we have many, many families here at Renewal. You can tell that when half of the congregation gets up and leaves before the sermon. We have many, many families, but we also have many, many people who are single. Or we have many people who are married without kids, or people whose children have either mostly or entirely left the house. So if that's you today, please don't check out, because this message is still for you. I'm not going to check out. This message is for me. And why is that? That's because our smaller families are microcosms. They're little windows that let us understand what God's larger family is like. And the way that God cares for and organizes his larger family is built on what he tells us to do with our little families. And so in the family of God, if you've progressed in the faith, if over the years you've learned how to relate to God and how to live in his world in a godly way, then in those areas you're what? You are spiritually older than someone else who has not yet learned those things. And God says there's an obligation, a responsibility for people who are spiritually older, and that is to pass their faith along to the next generation. Which means that all of us, at some point, are on this same mission that God gives to parents. And so today, you may not have biological children to bring up or instruct, but you do have a responsibility for those who are younger in the faith. And you need to feel the weight of that. You need to feel the same kind of responsibility for others in the family of God who are younger that parents need to feel for their biological children. Really easy to see this in Scripture. It's true for Jesus and Paul. Both of them felt the responsibility to help God's family grow, even though they didn't have children of their own. And so as you read what Jesus and Paul said, you start to hear them speaking in family kinds of ways. A couple different times, Jesus will call people son, daughter, child, as he's teaching and healing. He's thinking of the people of God as his family. And he's thinking that he has responsibility for them. Very similar way, Paul will call Timothy and Titus his true son, sons in the faith. Or he'll say to the Corinthians, in the faith, I became your spiritual father. Jesus and Paul both had this understanding that they were to take responsibility for raising people spiritually that they had not given birth to. So when I say parents today, please make sure you put your name there, even if you don't have biological children to raise, because the principles for parents with their children hold for all of us in the family of God. Second concern I want to speak to on the front end is how it's very easy to read a text like this, to hear a text like this, a biblical text like this, in a non-biblical way. Pharisees did this all the time. They would read a text like this as, here's another way to earn their place with God, as a way to get God to like me. They didn't rely on a relationship with him. They didn't rely on him being good to them, reaching out to them, building a relationship with them. They thought that was reversed. That they 
had the ability to reach out to him, build a relationship with him on the basis of how good they were. And so they would come to a passage like this and hear it as one more way to be good, to be good in such a way that God now had to be good to them. And so when they came across commands like this, their response was not to run to God for help. Their response was not to rely on him to work in their lives, but their response was to work really, really, really hard to prove their goodness as a way of then being able to say to God, see, I did what you said. I did it all by myself, and now you owe me. I'm good. You have to be nice to me. You owe me a good life in the future. In heaven, you owe me eternal life. And you owe me a good life now because I've been good. I deserve your goodness. And I could easily fall into making this passage sound just like that this morning. I could end up saying something like, here's your responsibility with your kids. And it's hard. But you just have to do it. You have to be good. And let me encourage you. I did it. You can do it. You just need to work harder. I could easily say something like that. And you realize that that has nothing to do with relying on Christ. <laughs> that has nothing to do with the empowering of God's Holy Spirit. It has nothing to do with God extending his grace to you. It has nothing to do with the centrality of the gospel that we talked about last week as having to be at the center of every area of our life. I could say things that would leave you with no hope in God, no experience of his love for you as a parent with an overwhelming task. I could say things that would just leave you feeling burdened. That's bad. What's worse is if you hear me and you're primed to hear me and you embrace that kind of message. If you embrace that kind of message, that will be the message that you pass along to your kids. And so you will end up teaching them, following God is hard, but it's just something you have to do. You need to be good. I did it. You can too. You just need to work harder. You could hear a message like that, embrace a message like that, and do your best to turn your children into good Pharisees. Or you would do your best to have your children rebel against everything that you ever taught them because they just couldn't stand the weight of that anymore. Approach this passage in an unbiblical way and you'll either be crushed by the weight of it or you will crush your kids with it or both. And that is not why God put this passage here. That's not the goodness that he plans for you. It's not the goodness that he plans for your kids. It's not the goodness that he plans for his church. So what then should happen as you read this passage? Well, clearly, you should feel the responsibility that God is passing along to you. That should come across really clearly. You should feel the weight of that. But that weight should drive you to your knees, not into yourself, trying to dig deeper, dig harder, try harder. It should drive you back to Jesus, the one who showed us exactly what God is like, the one who said, come to me, all of you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, 
because I'm lowly and humble in heart, and you'll find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Does God give you great responsibility for the next generation? Yes, he does. And you need to feel that. But does he leave you alone in it? No, he doesn't. He never does. God always gives you the resources that you need so that you can do what he tells you to do. And you hear that in Deuteronomy. You hear that in chapter 6, in this passage, verse 20. Moses anticipates there that if you take seriously your responsibility to communicate your faith, if this is the world that you're constructing for your children, one in which they are constantly being told and hearing about God and how that applies, then there will come a time when your child will ask something like verse 20. Your child will say something like, what is the meaning of the testimonies and the statutes and the rules that the Lord our God has commanded you? Or to put it more simply, why are we doing this? Why are you teaching me all of these things? What's the point? What do you say when that happens? Parents, you say, verse 21, we were Pharaoh's slaves in Egypt, and the Lord brought us out of Egypt with a mighty hand. Why do you say that? It's because that is the Old Testament salvation story that the next generation needs to hear. And so the parents tell their children, here's the point. Here is why we're teaching you all of these things. It's because at one time we were slaves of another power and there was absolutely nothing that we could do to free ourselves. We could not save ourselves from that power over us, but God, in his mercy, in his kindness, God took pity on us and he saved us. Unilaterally, he did for us what we could not do for ourselves. And then he gave us a brand new life. A life where we can now be friends with him, where we're free to be friends with him. And so we learn from him what this new life is like that he's brought us into. Why do we learn it? So that we can be a good friend to him. In other words, parents were to tell their children the universal story of what we are like as human beings. All of that story did what? It pointed to the reality that we are born into a dark world where every one of us is enslaved, enslaved to sin. And it points to us that we have absolutely no hope of getting out of that on our own. And yet we have this amazing God who takes pity on us and saves us when we cannot save ourselves. And he does that so that now we can live with him in the ways that he always intended us to live. In other words, what is the bottom line? As you read through Scripture, the whole book of Deuteronomy, what is the thing that you are supposed to have learned from everything else that God has said? What are you supposed to pick up from all of the statutes and testimonies and rules that God commands, the things you're supposed to teach? What are you supposed to have learned? You are supposed to learn the gospel. You're supposed to learn that everything that God says either rests on the gospel or in some way points to the gospel. The very same gospel that you run to when you feel like you can't do what God says. When you don't feel competent, able to teach your child everything that he said. When your children don't seem to listen and everything that you say seems to have no impact on them. When you see your inability to do what he says 
you fall on your knees and you run to the gospel. You trust his love and his kindness for you that extends to your children as you see your need. That's what your children are supposed to learn from you. Because as they see you do that, as they hear you talk about doing that, they learn that they also have to turn to the Lord when they can't make life work. So when you hear this passage, you have three options. Either you'll try a pharisaical approach to this and you'll just try harder until you turn your children into Pharisees. Or you'll run out of steam and run away from this passage as fast as you possibly can, hoping that someone else will do it for you. Or you'll run to the God who saves you and loves you in your deepest need, which is exactly what your children need to see, which is what you're supposed to communicate to them. That's God's goal for us as parents. That's his mission for us as parents. That's his mission for us as Sunday school teachers for youth group teachers. It's his mission for us as CG leaders, as pastors and elders, for anyone who tries to teach others what God has said. So, very long introduction today. Hopefully that helps us then be better able to hear the passage. Just two points then with the, the remainder of our time. First, what do you need then to equip you for this mission and second, what are you supposed to do? I'm going to be very brief on point one, a little bit longer on point two, but just two more things for the rest of the day. What do you need and what are you supposed to do? First, verse four. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. And these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. So what is it that you need before you can pass along God's words? You need to internalize them yourself. They need to be on your heart. It's not enough to have them external to you, written down somewhere. They have to be inside of you. You have to take them into the deepest recesses of your being, your heart, into the control center of your life so that God's words now form the basis of how you live, how, how you engage the larger world. And so you take them in so deeply that it's like verse 8, it's like you've bound them as a sign on your hand or as frontlets between your eyes. God's word is supposed to guide what your hand does. It sits in between everything that you see and everything out there. You take God's commands in so they impact your practices, and so they provide a filter, a lens, for how you perceive all the rest of the world. They do more than that. They also structure, then, how you engage the larger world. Verse 9, you're to write them on the doorposts of your house. What's that mean? It means that they form the culture of your home. And you're also to write them on your gates, the gates of your city, so that they communicate to the larger world God's voice guides everything that we do in our community. And I want you to notice here why you do this. It is not so that you can be a good person. It's not so that you have a reputation of being a good person. But you do this as part of love. You shall love the Lord your God. How? By drinking in his words. 
He has already loved you. He loved you before you ever had any idea of who he was. He loved you before you ever loved him. He rescued you and gave you a new life, and so now you love him in return. How do you do that? You embrace his words. You embrace how he lives. You take his words into yourself so that they motivate what you do as an individual, so that they form your home, your family unit, and so that they characterize our community. And the reason that you have to do this is because God has a completely different way for you to live than you will find in any nation, any culture on earth. Why do you do this? Is because as he says to the Israelites, it's because you used to live in Egypt, but you don't any longer. Verse 22, the Lord showed signs and wonders, great and grievous, against Egypt and against Pharaoh and all his household before our eyes. And he brought us out from there that he might bring us in and give us the land that he swore to give to our fathers. And the Lord commanded us to do all these statutes, to fear the Lord our God for our good always, that he might preserve us alive as we are this day. A lot of things in that passage that are interconnected. But you also hear a contrast. Here's part of it. You used to live in a country. You used to live in Egypt under a king. And that country and king had a certain understanding of the world. They had an understanding of people, of value, and of power. And they used their power to treat you and your children badly in every possible way. They stole your lives from you. But God broke in with a different understanding of power. He used his power to free you and to bring you into a new experience of life. And he's given you a new understanding of what life is all about. And understand that is for what? Verse 24, it's for your good, not for your destruction. It's for your good, for the good of your children. What he commands is for your benefit. See, Egypt's way of thinking, you're supposed to understand the larger world's way of thinking here, never leads to a place of human flourishing for every human being. The way that the world thinks someone is always hurt in some way. Factor out the God who made us. Take him out of the equation, the one who knows best how we work. Factor him out. And you will always create a system where some people benefit at the expense of others. But embrace the God who makes every human being in his image. Embrace his way of thinking. And it leads to a community that's good for everyone regardless of who you are and regardless of where you've come from, regardless of what you've done. And so now you and I can't go on autopilot. We can't keep thinking the old thoughts, the, the ways that we learned back in Egypt, the things that we learned from the world, the things that we read about every day, the things that we studied hard growing up. Instead, we need to embrace God's ways of thinking, God's ways of living. Because he rescued us with love, used his power for our good, we have to replace Egypt's words, our world's words, with God's so that his words are now the foundation of how we think and live. That's point one. That's what you need if you're going to be part of what God calls you to as a parent. So then point two, what do you need to do? You are to take these words that are on your heart, and verse seven, you shall teach them diligently to your children. 
and shall talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise. This is your mission, spelled out. This is the number one goal that you need to have in parenting, that you are diligent. What's that? You're focused on the goal. You're intentional. You're thinking about what you need to do and how you're going to do it. And then you apply yourself. You're diligent to take all of the words of God that you have heard and diligently teach those words to your children, applying them to every area of life. So here's the model in God's family. Verse 1, Moses taught the community. Moses communicated to the larger community everything that God commanded him, and then the community took responsibility to communicate what they had learned to their smaller community, to their children. And so what God is saying here is that parents for their children, parents are the first pastors for their children. That's what God is calling you here to pastor your children with his word. Children who will then later communicate that word, who will pastor their children, and so on down throughout the generations. And you realize God has just given people a mind-boggling task here. First to master what God has said, and then to teach that in appropriate ways to your children. Get on board with this. This has to drive you to your knees. Because you can't do this on your own. You can't do this without supernatural empowering. You can only do this if you rely on his grace. Because what he lays out here is enormous. It's enormous to the point of being overwhelming. Let's make sure, however, that we have a godly appreciation for overwhelming and don't make it bigger than what God has said. Okay, God tells us here we do have a responsibility. Responsibility to teach our children, to teach those who come into the community who don't yet know God's ways. But you have to hear this. Our responsibility, as big as that is, begins and ends with teaching. God doesn't say anything here about the results of our teaching. He doesn't make us responsible for what our children actually do with his words. We are responsible to make our children aware of who God is. We are not responsible for making our children love what God has said. They need to obey it while they're in our homes, but we don't have the ability to get inside of them and make them embrace that and make them passionate and joyful that this is what God has said. We're not responsible for that. We're not responsible for making our children love God. This is really hard. <laughs> Because that means then we can't make happen what we long to see happen. We want our children. I want our children. We want those that we disciple to love the God who is. But we don't have that kind of power. We can't make our own hearts love God or love what he says. We certainly can't make anyone else's heart love that either. And yet, this is really important. We still have a job to do. Our mission is not to produce people who love God. But our mission is to make them aware of who God is. You think, okay, how, how do you do this without being too aggressive? How do you do this without being apathetic? How do you avoid thinking that we can produce godliness in someone if only we had said things better 
or said them more, or said them less, or said them stronger, or said them louder, or said them softer? How do we avoid being too aggressive, taking on too much responsibility? And how do we avoid just quitting and giving up because what I'm doing doesn't seem to be doing anything? You do that by taking Jesus seriously in Mark chapter 4. He's telling a parable there. He said, the kingdom of God is like this. A man scatters seed on the ground. Now, earlier in that chapter, he had equated seed that you plant, seed with the word of God. The kingdom of God is like sowing seed. Man scatters it on the ground. He sleeps and rises night and day. The seed sprouts and grows, although he doesn't know how. The soil produces a crop by itself. First the blade, then the head, and then the full grain on the head. As soon as the crop is ready, he sends for the sickle because the harvest has come. The kingdom of God is like sowing seed. Seed that really does grow, but you have no idea how it does that. And so your calling as parents, as teachers, disciples, mentors, my calling as a pastor is not to make seed grow. We can't. If you ignore that reality, you will frustrate yourself and you'll frustrate your children by trying to make something happen that you don't have the ability to make happen. And at the same time that you're trying to make that happen, you won't focus on the thing that you're actually supposed to be doing. Our job is not to make seed grow. Our job is to sow the seed and to sow it as generously as we possibly can. Jesus tells this parable after he told a parable earlier about another farmer who went out to sow seed. And we learn in that parable that the seed landed on four different kinds of soil. Some on a hard path, some on rocky ground, some on thorny, and some on good soil. And so if you have that picture in your mind, there's this guy who's just flinging handfuls of seed everywhere. Seed that represents the Word of God. And so you have this picture of someone who is not stingy with the Word of God, spreads it around as far as he possibly can. Now, that's not how I plant seeds. I just planted grass seed about a month ago. I made sure it went exactly in the little bare spots on the earth, that, in my yard. Why? I have limited resources. God is telling you here, he does not have limited resources. His resources are insanely abundant. And so he doesn't want you and me being stingy with his word in our homes. He's telling you here, don't worry about what you think the condition of your child's heart is. Don't worry about whether or not you think my word can grow there. That's my job. Your job is not to make it grow. Your job is to sow it. Because one thing is certain, my word cannot grow if it's not sown. Now, how do you go about doing that? Maybe two different ways. One formally, one informally. Clearly, there are times when you sow seed at home formally. That's what Moses is doing in Deuteronomy. He's formally going through Scripture, teaching the people in a structured way while they're all gathered together, and there is a place for that in your home. Even more, however, in this passage, it's informal. Verse 7, you talk about what God has said when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way, when you lie down and when you rise. So from sunup 
to sundown, from breakfast to bedtime, you're on mission, filling your children's minds with the Word of God that are on your heart. And so you are bringing God's perspective into every activity where you and your children are together. You're helping them see that activity from God's perspective, how He sees it. You help them think about what they're doing by applying what God has said to do. Which again does what? It has to bring you to your knees. Because this is overwhelming to think about living this way. But again, if you let it bring you to your knees, that too will teach your children. It'll teach them how to handle God's commands when they seem impossible. You'll be showing them how to live by your actions. You'll show them what they need. You're also going to teach them about his love, how much he loves you, how much he loves them. That God doesn't command you to do things without giving you what you need in order to obey. So you're going to show them how to trust him. You'll be teaching them. Let me tell you about another friend of mine. I was talking to a dad once. His son was really good at basketball. He came home after a pretty important game in high school and needed to decompress. And so he grabbed his basketball, went out into the driveway, and just shot around for a while. Dad could hear you know, the ball bouncing. Later, son comes back in and says, Dad, can I ask you a question? How do I know when my love for basketball is okay and when it's too much? What is that? That's an informal moment where you have got to enter in with the Word of God. Those are the informal moments that our hearts long for. They're the ones that God tells us to be ready for. Those are the times when our kids are wrestling with their faith, with how does my faith fit into life because I'm not sure what this looks like. There are times when your child, your son or daughter, is willing to take a risk and tell you about themselves in a way that might be a little sketchy because they think that you might actually be helpful to them in that moment based on what they have heard from you filling their mind and their heart with over the years. I still want those moments so badly, even when my kids are gone. I want those moments really badly for you because that's what your children need. They need to trust that they can turn to you with those kind of questions, questions about the faith that they've heard you talk about. What I said before is still true. There's no guarantee. No guarantee that if you diligently teach all of these things to your children that you will get that question from your child. But I can guarantee that you won't get that question from your child if all they've ever heard you talk about is how to perfect their jump shot. Those questions only come when there's a context that you have created where that question makes sense, where you've been diligent to talk to your children about everything that God has said. When you've been diligent to tell your child, here's the gospel. Here's what God has said based on what he's done. Here's how it applies to every area of your life and mine. Here's how his commands are good because they grow out of his incredible love for us. Now, I know it's getting late. Let me be really practical here. I will be brief. But if you didn't grow up having this modeled to your 
by your parents, and I did not. Sally did not. If you didn't have this modeled, it can feel like you have no idea what this looks like and what, what on earth do I do with this. Let me give you just two quick ideas and, and an invitation. If this is helpful, please come. I'd love to talk with you more. The other pastors and elders would be delighted to brainstorm together. What, do, what might this look like in your home? Again, let's think formally and informally. Formally, it can mean just reading Scripture together. And I will freely confess that my family has struggled with this throughout our entire life as a family. We have started and stopped reading together more times than I can remember. That we did not do well. Here's one thing that we did do well. And that was that we developed a way very early on that was a good way of navigating this for everyone. Sally and I first got married. We knew that we needed to hear from God together. But we also knew that that was not going to work if I thought it was my job to teach and she thought it was her job to listen. And so we needed to do something different. What we did then was we would read a passage together and then we would look at each other and we would ask one basic question. What did you see there? That was it. What did you see in the passage? What stood out to you? What do you think God wanted to say to you in that passage? And then we would talk about it. We were able to bridge that in with the kids. We did that especially after Sunday morning service, gathered around the table at lunch. And we would ask, what did you think God wanted to say to you through the service today? Expectations that everybody gets to participate. People could certainly share more than one thing if they wanted, but everyone was expected to share one thing. And so what did you think God wanted to say to you through the service? And then here's the teaching response. Ready? That's great. Thank you for sharing that. Okay? Formal teaching does not have to be burdensome. God does not intend it to be burdensome. What do you think God said to you? Wow, that's great. Thank you. Really appreciate hearing that. That's formal. Informal is different. Informal is like playing jazz. Informal is where you have to be creative and responsive to something that's happening in the moment, to what's going on. And here, I think maybe a different question is helpful. I'm going to use an illustration that I got from a friend. So if you don't find this helpful, you can blame him. Illustration is based on different kinds of dancing. Now, if you've ever seen me pretend to dance, you know that this is really not my strength. So if I say stupid things, you can again come and correct me later. But in the dance world, using that as an analogy, we want to be a community of waltzing Christians, not two-step Christians. Again, I know I don't know what I'm talking about. Two-step, I'll say it anyway. Two-step dancing is where the steps are paired with each other. So that the rhythm is quick step, quick step, slow step, slow step, quick, quick, slow, slow. Not that I know what that means personally. What it then is a two-step Christian? That's someone who sees something bad and then tries to do something good. Just two steps. See the bad, do the good. See the bad, do the good. Which, if you think about it, really isn't Christianity at all. What is that? That's, that's moralism. That's just being a good person. It's relying on your own powers, your own abilities to see the bad, do the good. You're revisiting the Pharisees' experiment one more time. Real Christianity does not two-step. Real faith, real Christianity waltzes. 
Waltzing has a third step to complete the sequence. And so the rhythm is not one, two, one, two. The rhythm is one, two, three, one, two, three, one, two, three. We, one, we see the bad. Two, though, we go immediately to God. There's this movement toward God saying, what resources does God give to me in this moment? And it's only then, third, that we go to what do we do next? So see the bad, get the resources that God offers, and then do the good. Three steps. Now, if you'll practice that in your own life, practice turning to God in that middle step and asking him what he offers you, then that will help you as you need to help your child think about their own life and what they should do next. Because you'll be used to that second step of turning to God. You'll teach your child, I don't know what we need to do right now, but I do know where we need to go. I know that we need to turn to God and we need to hear what his resources are for us in this moment. In other words, you don't have to know in that informal moment what it is that God says. You have to know that that's what you need. And you have to know that that's where you turn. And if you will do that with your children, you are teaching them from breakfast to bedtime that God has something for us, something in this situation. And one of the things that I like about this illustration, for those of you who are musically inclined, is recognizing you can't do both of those at once. You have to leave one of those worlds in order to do the other. Two-step dances take place in 4-4 four, four time. Waltzes take place in 3-4 time. They inhabit very different worlds. You can't waltz a two-step. And so you have to leave one way of marking time in order to dance this other kind of dance. You have to leave Egypt and Egypt's way of thinking if you're going to enter into this new life that God's given and teach your kids all his commands. Do that, and there's a promise for you in verse 25, that this will be righteousness for you if you are careful to do all this commandment before the Lord your God as he commanded you. And if the book ended there, that would utterly crush me because it's very easy for me to think about my failures. Very easy to think about all the times when I have not obeyed this commandment. The times when I did not teach formally and I should have. The informal times where I gave in to being too tired, too busy, not interested enough to study hard to figure out what my child needed. Or the times when I looked at a stony, faced, hard-hearted person and I thought, why even bother? There's no point to even trying. It's not going to make a bit of difference. I think about all of those times. It will be righteousness for you. That just mocks me. Because I threw those times away. So that now for me, those times are unrighteousness. What do you do then? What do you do if you've not been diligent? What do you do if your children are grown and gone? What do you do if you've not worked hard to care about the next generation of the church? You do what God's people have always done. You go back to the gospel because sometimes you need to have it more than once in a day. That's why I front-loaded in the sermons, why we're coming back to it at the end. You go back to the gospel when you look at your failures as a parent 
when you look at the lost opportunities that you can't get back, you go back to the gospel, you go to that second step. And you learn one more time to trust that God's ability to redeem your life is always greater than your ability to ruin it. How do you do that? Well, you realize that the book doesn't end here in chapter 6. It keeps on going. The ending's a little startling. You'd learn in chapter 31 that God says the people will not be righteous. He says the people are going to be wicked. They're going to reject him. God already knows while he's telling them what to do that they're not going to do it, that they'll be unrighteous. Chapter 32 elaborates on just how unrighteous they're going to be. It talks about how they'll be a warped and crooked generation, that they will abandon and reject God after all of the good things that he's done for them. That's the kind of righteousness they're going to produce, which sounds utterly hopeless until you turn to the next chapter, chapter 33. <laughs> and it is one long chapter of blessing, of Moses blessing every single one of the tribes of Israel, these tribes who will not produce righteousness for themselves. And that's the last word. In other words, last word on God's people is not judgment for unrighteousness. The last word from God is blessing. How can that be? They, they didn't earn it. They don't deserve it. The answer comes at the end of chapter 33. After talking about all the tribes, it talks about God. It talks about how God helps them and is a refuge for them and that he saves them. And you learn there one more time that God never quits on them, never gives up on them, even after they've blown him off and not obeyed him when he's been incredibly clear. Israel did not have their own righteousness, but God loved them anyway. He never quit loving them. His love never depended on them being righteous. It's not why he started loving them. Their unrighteousness is not going to be reason for him to stop. And ultimately, then, that does what? It points us forward to Christ. And you realize that Jesus does save us from the penalty of our sin on the cross. He saves us from being punished for every time that we failed to teach our children, failed to care well about the next generation in the church. But it tells us that Jesus does more than simply remove our unrighteousness. <laughs> he gives us his he gives us his right standing with God that he did earn. So that even with all of our failures as parents, God is still friends with us. Even when we failed our kids, when we failed in the church. Little nuance, does his righteousness erase the consequences of what we've done or left undone? No. It doesn't erase them. But it means that those consequences are not the last word on us. They're not the last word on you. And if they're not the last word on us, we have no right to believe that they're the last word on anyone, including our children, even if our kids have already left home. Do I have regrets as a parent? Tons of them. But I have something else too. I have a God who has no regrets. No regrets in loving me. No regrets in giving me the family he gave me. No regrets in loving 
the children that I have. He loves my kids far more than I possibly can. He loves your kids far more than you possibly can. Trust this God to be better than you've ever imagined. And in trusting him, do now what he tells you to do. Trust that he wants to be at work in the lives of your children, regardless of how old they are. Trust that he wants to work in them through his word. And trust that he still wants to work in them through you. As you continue to communicate, here's what God's word has meant to me. Here's the gospel. Lord Jesus, thank you that you never leave us in a place of failure. Thank you that your mercies really are new every morning. Thank you, Lord, that you have promised to restore everything that sin and evil have ruined. Thank you, Lord, that that is true of us, that is true of our families, that's true of our church, that's true of your church globally. Thank you that we can trust you to be better than we ever believed you would be. In Jesus' name, amen.